Welcome to the Refined Collective Podcast. I'm your host, Kat Harris. I'm co-founder of the online magazine, The Refined Woman, and my vision is to create a safe space where we can take off that Superman cape of having it all together and share our stories authentically and honestly. I really believe people are dying for the permission to be vulnerable, to just go there, but it takes someone being willing to go there first. It's my desire to do just that and invite you and others to do the same by removing that shiny mask of perfection and courageously sharing the imperfect journeys of life, spirituality, love, business, and everything in between. Well, hello, and welcome to another episode of the Refined Collective Podcast. Today is a good day. I think, because I'm doing another solo show. So I'm riding solo today. It's just me and you. And to be honest, I wish that we could just have this conversation sitting on my couch, having a cup of coffee, just looking at each other eye to eye, because I think it's a really important conversation. And I've been really hesitant to talk about this specific topic because... I think when we struggle with something and we're neck deep in the struggle, we just want the quick fix. So tell me how you got free. Give me the five steps to freedom. Give me the formula. Give me the system. I'll do whatever it takes. I want to get healed quick. And I want the get healed quick miracle process. And as amazing as that is, and as amazing as that sounds, healing often doesn't work like that. At least that has been my experience. Now, I believe God is the God of miracles, and I will pray for miracles every day of my life and believe for them. And God does miraculous things all the time. But I've noticed, particularly with struggle and things like addiction, that there is a walking out process, and it often looks different for many different people. So... Today, talking with you specifically about eating disorders is something that feels vulnerable to be talking with you about because I don't want you to listen to this if you are neck deep in your struggle. And the reason why I am speaking specifically into this is because I have gotten recent DMs from women all over the world asking me to talk about this. And if you're listening to this, what I want you to hear is that I believe freedom is possible for you. I believe God has more freedom than you could possibly imagine, but there's no quick fix to freedom. It takes work. It takes discipline, courage, honesty, and the willingness to fail and fall over and over and over again. However, if we are brave enough we will use those fumbles and missteps and failures as our greatest teachers. So I think what happens in our struggles, and this happened for me, and it can still happen for me, is when I'm moving towards growth or freedom in an area of my life, if I fall, then I'm like, ah, I'm back at square one. I might as well not even try. See, this is never going to not be my portion. This is never going to not be my destiny. When part of the healing process is learning to fall and then have the courage to get back up. 
I love how Brene Brown says it. Um, she talks about these people who rumble with failure. And she says, these are people who choose courage over comfort, accountability over blame, and are able to embed key learnings from failures into their lives. Brene Brown just preaching away. So I will never forget when I first started struggling with my body image. I was not one of those girls in elementary school, middle school, or high school that really cared at all. I was an athlete. I played tennis my whole life. And I even to this day, people are like, why do you work out so much? Like, how do you do that? And I'm like, I am literally a toddler that needs recess. Like, I love being active. I love moving. I love sweating. And as a kid, I just was always the kid that was outside running around and playing. And then when I found tennis or when it found me, it just became like this love affair. And I was always on the tennis court. I lived my life on the tennis court. That's where I felt most like myself, most alive. And so I was in really good shape by nature because I was just working out all the time. And I had vision to be a D1 collegiate athlete on a full ride scholarship. So a lot of my decisions growing up from the time I was in middle school and high school were to set me up for success for that goal. So I didn't eat the healthiest, but I was working out a lot. And I just was so driven by that goal that honestly, the last thing on my mind was, do I look fat in this? Or will guys think I'm pretty? Like, I just was not thinking about that. But then (laughs) I got the D1 full ride scholarship to play tennis in college and things really changed. I remember one of my first weeks in college as a freshman. I lived in the athletic dorm and I never knew what it was like to be in a sorority, but I can only imagine it's a little bit like what it is to be an athlete. We all lived together. We ate together. We had our own cafeteria. We practiced together. I mean, you are living, eating, breathing, sweating, crying, fighting with your teammates. They become your closest friends and allies. And I remember being at orientation with athletic director and him saying, you know, for the next four years, your body isn't your own and you are going to look different. You're probably going to gain weight and muscle mass that you haven't before. And yet there's also going to be this pressure on you from society and culture to still look like a Barbie supermodel, but you can't be both. I remember him saying that. And it really kind of went over my head because I was like, I don't know what you're talking about. I'm not going to bulk up or anything. I really had no clue. But meanwhile, (laughs) every girl on my team was very, very insecure about their bodies. And I just remember it feeling like that scene from Mean Girls. Do you remember that movie? And well, how could you forget it? It's amazing. Um, Unless you are just like way younger than me. But that scene where they're in Regina George's bedroom and it's after school and Caddy or Katie, now I can't remember how to say her name, is in the bedroom with all the girls. You know, she's an exchange student. She's just moved to America and is experiencing teenage life in America for the first time. And they're standing in front of the mirror and all the other girls are like, oh my gosh, my elbow is fat or I need to lose three pounds or I hate my chin. And 
Katie is like, well, I have bad breath in the morning. And they're all like, ew, gross. But that's how it was for me when I was around all these girls that were struggling with their body image. I was like, what do you mean? Like, let's just go to McDonald's and have a McFlurry. Like I, it was like the last thing on my mind. However, when you are surrounded by people neck deep in a struggle constantly day in, day out, it can be really easy to start letting their dysfunction slime all over you. And that's what began to happen for me. I went pretty overnight from being oblivious to food being my constant thought. We had weekly weigh-ins for my coach. She started making us keep food journals and she would forbid us from eating certain foods, which by the way, is very dysfunctional and totally not cool. And this was not the right thing for this coach to do, but this is what my experience was. And the rebel that I am um, is you tell me I can't do something and I'm going to like way do that thing. So this can be like a good quality for me. I'm like, oh, you're telling me that I can't start the business. Oh, I'm starting the business. But it can also be like a a really unhealthy and bad thing. So we couldn't eat cookies or we couldn't have a milkshake. Oh, well, then we're definitely going to the cafeteria at 10 o'clock at night and having five milkshakes and eating 10 cookies and eating the whole roll of cookie dough. So I started with my teammates. It was almost this like rebellious act because we had lost all this control over our bodies. And some people gained the freshman 15, but I gained the freshman, gosh, between 20 and 30. Let's just land at a happy 25. I was gaining a ton of muscle. I felt like I looked like a linebacker. And on top of that, I was, because I was forbidden from eating foods, I was going way overboard than what I normally would have done. So one day, a few months, or it was probably halfway through that first semester of freshman year, I was with two of the girls on my tennis team. And we were leaving the cafeteria one day after practice and we were stuffed. We were so full. And one of the girls was like, oh, we should go throw up our food. And me and the other girl were like, oh, that's bad. And we shouldn't do that. And peer pressure, we were like, you know, we all feel full and it's not that bad. Let's go do it. So we went behind our dorms and went behind this trash dumpster and the one girl taught us how to throw up. And she made it look really easy, by the way. And she stuck her finger down her throat, threw up, and she threw up her food. And then I did it. (laughs) And let me tell you, when I was throwing up my food on a regular basis, it was not pretty. My eyes were bloodshot. It burned. I felt like I was choking because I was literally choking myself. I would be all swollen in my face afterwards. It was super painful. And honestly, it felt like, man, for the amount of work and pain this is, this almost doesn't seem worth it. Um, But once I kind of got that first hit of, oh, I can eat all these things and then I can just go throw it up. Well, that's pretty cool. So for the majority of that freshman year of college, it was like this dirty little secret that me and a couple of the girls on the team would go do after we ate too much. It was never an all the time thing for me, maybe like once a week, once or twice a week, and it never got easier. And I also felt like really 
shameful about it. And I felt guilty. And at the time I was leading this Bible study of high school students, you know, and we were talking about, you are worthy, you are beautiful. Yet secretly I was like, I feel so insecure and I'm doing this thing that I, I, I'm pretty sure is not a good thing. So because I wasn't that great at it and because I felt super guilty about it, I stopped throwing up my food and I never really did it again. I may have tried maybe once or twice over the years after that, but it was such a painful thing um, for me, like physically that I stopped doing it. And honestly, like, I think I'm, I like messed something up in my throat because even to this day, like my body does not want to throw up. Like, do you ever feel like, oh my gosh, my stomach hurts so bad. Like I feel so nauseous. Like, and you feel like if I just throw up, I'll feel so much better. Yeah. Well, like when I do that, my body's like, we are not throwing up. So I, yeah, there's sometimes where I'm like, man, I wish I could just get this gross food out that I ate, but my body literally won't let me. So instead of throwing up my food, I began another thing. I continued the binging. Um, but instead of throwing up my food, I would be really calculated. So I would eat X amount of milkshakes or burgers or whatever the food was, and then count the calories and realize, okay, so I need to work out this much time on this elliptical machine at the gym to burn off those calories. Now, remember I was a collegiate athlete, so I was already working out around six hours a day from weightlifting to endurance training to being on the court for four hours. So it was pretty much my full-time job to be working out. But on top of that, to balance out the binging that I was doing, uh, I was then going to the gym and working out extra. So a lot of people think that they don't have an eating disorder because they're not throwing up or they're not starving themselves. But I will tell you that this is a disorder to be counting your calories all the time to be, okay, I have to go work out now because I just ate this. That is dysfunctional and that is not orderly. So I would say that is a form of eating disorder. So because I couldn't not eat during season, because I was working out so much and we were competing, it would be in the summer then that I would really limit myself so that I could then get to my weigh-in goal for when we got back from summer, knowing that I would probably then gain some weight again because we would be eating thousands of calories and working out more. So then in the summer, it would turn from not as much binging, but still counting calories, really limiting myself. And I remember two weeks before my sophomore year started, I actually got my tongue pierced and I was not allowed to do that. My mom was like going to kill me. And so I took it out like after a week because I felt so guilty about it. Um, but in that time, because my tongue was swollen when it was healing, I basically only ate like water popsicles for oh, like a week and a half so that, yeah, I blamed it on, oh, like I'm recovering from this piercing I got, but it was really, I have an eating disorder and I'm trying to get my way in goal. So that was pretty much my pattern while I was an athlete. During the school year, I would binge, 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 calorie count, go work out extra, and we would do our weekly weigh-ins, we would do our food journals, and 
then on the summer, I would really limit myself and really try to like lose as much weight as I could. So it was this battle of like yo-yo up and down and food became this like demon in my eyes and working out instead of being this thing that was fun and playful and a gift was a chore and something I didn't look forward to and was negative in my eyes. And that was, I think the saddest part for me is tennis and being active was like the greatest gift of my life. And then for a lot of reasons, but this partly because I was in such an eating disorder, it stole all this joy from my life, from the things that I really, really loved. I got to a point where I ended up quitting tennis for a lot of reasons. I'm not going to go into all of those today. I was really hurt. I was really burnt out. But when I quit tennis, I thought I will instantly lose all of this crazy muscle mass that I had. Like I had such a thick neck. (laughs) Like I was, I was like thick and fit and I was just ready to, once I quit, be quote unquote normal again. And I thought, oh, I'll just quit tennis and all this binging will stop because the dysfunctional patterns that I was put into because of the coach I was under and being around a bunch of other women in the athletic department that also had eating disorders. Well, now that I'm not going to be around that, I'm not going to struggle with that. But guess who left the tennis program with me? myself. I followed myself. So my dysfunctional patterns that I had set in place followed me through the rest of my college and post-college experience. And so when I struggled, it wasn't all the time. I wasn't, you know, binging like crazy every second of the day. But when it would happen, it was like my late night secret. I hated it. Like I didn't even enjoy when I was eating the food. I just remember like one time eating this bread pudding late at night and I ate this whole pan of bread pudding. And I was like, I don't even like this. Like, why am I doing this? And then I would hate myself after it. (laughs) But it was like in that moment, I felt like I couldn't stop myself. So I think the first thing we have to do is have to be willing to stop this insanity cycle of addiction. And yes, an eating disorder is I believe, an addiction. And insanity is doing the same thing over and over and over again, expecting different results. So if I wanted my eating disorder to stop, but yet I was unwilling to change anything about my day-to-day life, the way I interacted with food, what I thought about myself, anything in between that, then I was just stuck in an insanity cycle of addiction, expecting different results when I was unwilling to do anything different. And I think this is where so many of us get tripped up in our addictions, whether that is eating disorder, pornography, drugs, is we realize there's a problem. There is a problem. I do not want to be eating a pan of bread pudding late at night when I'm not even hungry and then be unable to sleep all night because I'm so full. But then I didn't do anything different to change it. 
A lot of people say you have to hit your rock bottom when you're in addiction. They talk about this in a lot of 12 steps programs, these, this idea of rock bottom. And a lot of times what people on the outside think is rock bottom. If you've ever been in a relationship with anyone that is an addict, you're like, okay, this time it's gotta be rock bottom, right? Like they've lost their job. They've lost their family. They have no money. This is rock bottom, but it often takes a lot more for the addict. And sometimes what rock bottom on the outside to every other person is just the beginning for the addict. And then there's this other experience. Like you do not have to have this like crazy rock bottom. You don't have to be so deep in your anorexia that you're 60 pounds and have to go to an inpatient treatment center for six months to accept that you have a problem and then be willing to do whatever it takes to seek healing. Some people have soft bottoms, no pun intended, but hell, it's funny. Um, And a soft bottom is, okay, so maybe you're not hitting rock bottom. Maybe you're not losing your job, but maybe you're just like, I'm really tired of this. And this is stopping me from a relationship. It's isolating myself because then when you're in addiction, you feel guilty Or when you are binging, overeating, throwing up, what are you doing in all those things? Well, you are in isolation. So you're isolating yourself from others. You're isolating yourself from community. And maybe you don't have to have this rock bottom. Maybe you just get to a point where you're just tired of that cycle. And that is sort of what happened to me. I didn't have to completely stop my life, go to an inpatient program. I wasn't skin and bones ever, but I realized I have a real problem here and I do not want to live my life like this. And I want freedom. And I remember being with my sisters and I'm one of six kids and I have four younger sisters and feeling like I do not want to pass this on to them. Like I don't want my sisters like in bondage to food or constantly insecure about what they look like or hating their bodies, hating themselves. And I definitely did not want to enter marriage and have children and then pass that along to my children um, because our children are always watching us. Like kids aren't watching what you do. They're watching how you be. And I wanted freedom. So number one, the first thing that has to happen in your journey towards freedom from an eating disorder is you have to admit you have a problem. I remember I was meeting with one of my really good friends from high school. We were in college at the time and we got coffee and I did not know up until that point that she had an eating disorder. But when we met, she started talking with me about being healed and freedom from this eating disorder that she had experienced all through high school. And looking back, I was I remembered, oh, she was always like super thin and always eating super healthy, but I just figured she was a healthy person. But really, she had this deep dark eating disorder secret. And I remember meeting with her and it was like there was freedom dripping off of her. And that freedom felt contagious. I remember like, I felt like I was sitting with an, like an alien, like who is this person? And is it real? Like, is she really telling me the truth? But you can't fake freedom. And that was such an enlightening moment for me. As I sat across a cafe table with her sipping on my coffee, I wanted what she had. 
And I knew that I had a problem because I knew that I wasn't free. And sometimes we have to see someone else's freedom to believe in the possibility of that freedom for ourselves. Now, I wish I could tell you after that, after I had my aha moment where, oh, I have this big problem, I never binged again. I never wanted to throw up my food again. I never wanted to count calories again. But that is not what happened because healing just is typically not linear. So after really admitting that I had a problem, it was then time for me to start identifying the triggers. So really pause. Now, it's it can be hard to pause in the moment, right? Like in the middle of the struggle to be like, all right, what's coming up for me? So the first thing that I started doing was post-binge or post-experience being like, okay, that just happened. I'm identifying, okay, I just did the thing again that I didn't want to do. And instead of being in the insanity cycle, I was ready to break up that pattern. So I paused and would ask myself, why did I do that? What led to that binge? Because it feels like in the moment when you're picking up the 30th cookie or whatever it is, that there is no option. I remember being like, I don't want to eat this, but I feel like I can't not. It doesn't feel like a choice in the moment. And oftentimes in that moment, it doesn't feel like a choice. But That is also why it is so important to pause and identify, okay, it's not what happened in the moment where I grabbed for the cookie. It's what started happening 20 steps before that. It could have even started three weeks before that moment that then began to lead me down a path where when I finally got to the moment where it felt like there was no decision, then it felt like I had no other option. I remember doing this so many times and I would feel like such a failure when I struggled again and again and again. But again, it takes real bravery to let our failures be our teaching tool. So I started saying, okay, I'm not back at square one. I'm noticing this is happening. What's happening? What's coming up for me? So one of my friends used this phrase that a lot of people use. It's called halt. Are you hungry, angry, lonely, or tired? That is when most breakdowns begin, is when one of those things are happening. So, all right, did I wait 12 hours to eat? Well, then I'm too hungry. And then my blood sugar is low, um, my brain is foggy, and my body is in crisis mode. So then that that's the perfect recipe for a binge, right? Like I have withheld too much, and then my body is in crisis mode, and it's just like, eat anything. Am I angry? Am I lonely? Again, in addiction, when we begin to isolate ourselves, it's kind of like a trigger moment of, okay, something's up right now. I need to reach out to someone. Or am I tired? A lot of breakdowns happen when we are tired, when we are not sleeping enough, when it's late at night. My mom used to say, nothing good happens after midnight. And the older I get, the more I'm like, that's just so true. We do, we really do need sleep. So kind of beginning to identify those trigger moments in my life was really powerful. And two main things would come up to me was either number one, control. So where in my life was I feeling a loss of control and then wanting to over control this area of my life? So maybe I was feeling really insecure about not having the romantic relationship that I wanted, or I was broke 
in college and post-college for those first few years, I was hardly making any money and it felt scary. And so when I felt a lack of control in that area of life, I wanted to over-control this area of my life. Another thing that I would really do, and this is more so how the eating disorder would show up for me, is I would numb out. So what I mean by that is so often when we don't want to feel something, we what we watch like it's not bad to watch like two episodes of Friends on Netflix. But if I have done a 12 hour Netflix binge, notice that that phrase binge is very casually integrated into our entertainment culture now. I think that's really interesting. But that is a moment to pause. All right. Why did I just watch TV for the last 12 hours? Is there something I'm not wanting to feel? Is there something I'm not wanting to deal with? And with the food specifically and with other things, we often inflict pain on ourselves because it's easier to pinpoint, oh, I feel pain because I ripped that hangnail off and now I'm bleeding as opposed to digging into the dark, murky, cold waters of our past. It's much easier to say, I stubbed my toe, that's why I hurt, as opposed to, holy cow, I think I can't be in any sort of healthy relationship with men because of my parents' divorce, or my daddy issues, or this really painful dynamic I had with a friend 15 years ago. That is much harder to pinpoint, and that takes a lot more work to do. So with food, often what we can do, we don't want to feel we're hungry, angry, lonely, or tired. We feel lack of control. We don't want to deal with it. And so then what I would do is I would eat a crap ton of food. And then all I could focus on was, oh, I feel so sick. I feel so full. Why did I do it again? And then I'm trapped in not getting any healing because I am stuck at the surface. So if we really want to be able to heal, we have to be able to pause, eventually be able to identify the trigger in the moment. Okay. I think I'm numbing out right now. Okay. Let's pause. Let's stop. Let's reach out to someone for support. Um, let's shake things up. Let's, let's, if I'm at home, let's go for a walk, but really being able to pause and identify those triggers. Now, the next thing that is so important is that we bring darkness to light. For me, and I think for so many of us, we want to be seen as perfect. So we often try to like white knuckle our struggles in private until we overcome them. And then we like do this thing like at our Bible study or a small group or over wine with our girlfriends. I'm like, oh, I was really struggling a few months ago back there, but I'm not anymore. And here's how I got out of it. Praise God. And I was like the queen of this because I was quote unquote, a leader and I was a leader in my community. And so I wanted to always use my struggle as a teaching point, but I never wanted to be supported in the process because I wanted to white knuckle it on my own because I felt like I can't trust other people. I can't maybe even trust God, but I can trust myself and I'm going to do this on my own. Here's the truth though. God did not create us to live on an island by ourselves, picking ourselves up by the bootstrap. God created us for community. Community and inviting trusted, safe people into those dark cracks and crevices and shining light there I believe is one of the most crucial steps towards freedom. After college, I moved in to this house in Southern California. 
And this house was such a transformative experience for me on many levels. But one of the things from day one was we made a commitment to not body shame and to not demonize food. So something that can happen when all the girls get together, just like the Mean Girls movie, is we get together and, oh, I feel fat today. Oh, man, my stomach isn't as firm and tight as I want it to be. Gosh, there's cellulite on my arms. Oh my gosh, my teeth are crooked. We do this thing to bond where we are shaming ourselves with each other. And then it's this like dysfunctional cycle with each other that when we get together, we talk about how bad our bodies are. And then we also talk about how bad we were with food. So I had to get to a point where I refused to demonize food and living in that house really supported me. So it was no more of this, oh, I was bad today or I ate that cake and the cake is bad, so I'm bad. Food isn't evil, but the way we interact with it can be very dysfunctional. So then we create this cycle of shame. We eat too much or eat too little and then we feel guilty. And then because we feel guilty, we have to atone. So we have to atone for our sins. So for me, because I was a binger, that would mean, oh, I feel guilty. I ate too much. Now I got to go to the gym. So then after that, you feel good for a little while. But since we don't really deal with the root, we do it all over again. And it's the vicious shame and insanity cycle. So even though I had been out of college for a few years, I still had this dysfunctional view of food and working out. And I honestly, like, I felt guilty all the time that I couldn't work out, the quote-unquote bad food that I was had been eating. And I also had this, like, twisted mindset of what was normal. Because for most of my life, what was normal were six-hour workouts a day. Because I was a collegiate athlete. That was my job. My job was to be an athlete. So going post-college to, all right, instead of working out six hours a day, I was maybe going to the gym three times a week for 45 minutes. It felt like nothing. It felt like it didn't even matter. And so it like that is such an incredible little strategy of the enemy. Wherever you are in the spectrum, there's shame. I was working out six hours a day in college. It wasn't enough. I felt shame about my body, so I worked out more. Post-college, I was not a professional athlete anymore, and I was working out three times a week in the midst of a full-time job, and that wasn't enough. So regardless of where I was on the spectrum, I was in shame. And I think that's what that's what shame does. And that's why we isolate is we feel like we're the only ones. And no matter where you are in the spectrum of your eating disorder or your struggle with body image, I'm letting you know that you are not the only one and your shade of shame is keeping you stuck. And it doesn't have to be that way. So at this time, I was going to a chiropractor and he was this amazing, like godly, holy spirit man. And he would like always pray over me before adjusting me and would give me these words. And I was, I was sharing with him one time, I feel like so unhealthy right now. I feel like so insecure about my body and 
he asked me, oh, like, what are you doing for being physically active right now? And at the time I was really new into my job. I couldn't really afford a gym membership. So on my lunch break, I would go on walks for 30 minutes. And I just was like, how lame is that? I'm going on these walks and I can't even afford to go to the gym right now. I was just shame, shame, shaming myself. And he looked at me and said, you know, you're not a college athlete anymore. That's not your job anymore. So what if you were to honor where your body is at in this season and stop comparing yourself to who you once were? Because often we look at the past with rose-colored glasses. So he challenged me, what if what a blessing to your body was right now was to just go on those 30-minute walks? What if you gave yourself permission to be in the season that you're in and also gave yourself permission to not be a professional athlete anymore? I I had to discover a new normal because unless I was a professional athlete working out six hours a day and consuming thousands of calories, that sort of lifestyle wasn't normal. So a friend of mine took six months off of working out before she got married. And I thought this was completely insane, mostly because I was still in my addiction. Um, But she wanted to enter her marriage in freedom. And I think so many women getting ready for their wedding day, they go through these, these crazy crash diets. And she just felt like, I don't want to be in bondage to food and I believe that my husband is going to love me where my body is at right now. And she had a past of overdoing it and struggling with an eating disorder. So instead of going on this crash diet workout plan before she got married, she chose in a healthy way to not work out before she got married. So I saw this and as crazy as I thought she was, again, I was like, wow, that's amazing. She like really, really fought for her freedom and did the uncomfortable thing. So that is what I started doing after my chiropractor really challenged me. I decided to really, I, it ended up being close to a year of really listening to my body instead of saying, oh my gosh, you suck. You didn't work out six hours today. I would ask myself, how does my body feel today? Am I really tired? Okay. Do I want to get more energy from working out? Yeah. Okay. Let's go on a walk or let's go on a run. I'm going to honor that. Okay. Maybe the next day. No, I I really don't feel like it. Okay. I'm not going to do that. And then I started doing it with food as well. I would feel like the urge to be like, oh, I want a donut today. And I'd ask myself, okay, why do I want the donut? Am I hungry? Does it feel like a nice little treat? Am I trying to numb out? And if it, the answer was, you know, I just kind of want a donut. That sounds good to me. I would get a donut, not 12. And the more and more I started learning to listen to my body the healing came. The healing came when I refused to demonize food, when I refused to demonize working out, because working out then became a punishment for what I was doing as opposed to a gift of having a healthy body. So my healing process happened slowly over time in community, but it wasn't linear. So what I want to tell you now is that healing is not linear, but healing is possible. We want this like perfect upward slope of perfection, freedom, but it's more like looking at a picture that a three-year-old colors for you, a bunch of scribble scrabble, like two steps forward and two steps back. 
I think what's important is that we praise the progress instead of focusing on the failures. I've used this metaphor before and I, I, it just speaks so much to me. When children are learning to walk, mom and dad do not shame the child for falling. They praise the movement and say, oh my gosh, she took three steps before she fell this time. Oh my gosh, she took 10 steps. Let's, and let's get you up together. Let's go back again. And oh, she, she fell after one step that time. There's no, there's no shaming the failures. It's like, wow, look at the progress in between the falls. So I think it's so important to acknowledge the movement. Yeah, dissect the falls. How did I get here? Why did this happen? How can I avoid this for next time? But alongside that, noticing with the parents and the children, the child wasn't alone learning how to walk. The child is with others that are trustworthy. So be willing to get support. We need more than ourselves. Like you do not have to white knuckle this. For such a long time, I kept this struggle inside alone, white knuckling it. And it was like, like, killing me on the inside. It it really, like it was keeping me from relationship to myself, to others, to God. We have to be willing to bring that darkness to light and get support, get accountability and get accountability from someone who's not neck deep in the same struggle as you. So when I was in college, I lived with a girl and we were both neck deep in eating disorder and we were our quote unquote accountability partners. Well, if one of us fell off the bandwagon and then the other one would fall off the bandwagon and then we're both neck deep justifying each other's quote unquote relapses. So be willing to get accountability from someone who has freedom. And this takes being honest with yourself, being honest with the people in your life to go get therapy. Like the symptom is the eating disorder. The root is all the things going on on underneath that are begging for healing. So if you white knuckle it and stop throwing up or stop binging, but don't deal with the root, that pain is just going to come out sideways in another form. It's like putting your thumb in a hole in a boat that's sinking. That Putting your thumb in that hole is just going to make the water come in from another source. So therapy is crucial. Three, be willing to be a part of 12-step programs. I think there can be so much stigma around this. I love 12-step programs. Um, The one that I did in college was Celebrate Recovery, and there are churches and organizations all over the country. I don't don't know if it's the world, but definitely the, the United States that offer Celebrate Recovery. And you can be a part of a faith-based community that has a recovery program and built-in accountability. Be willing to do that. Be willing to do whatever it takes for your healing. There's also Overeaters Anonymous, which is a nonprofit organization all over the U.S. as well that has a 12-step program that you can have a sponsor. And lastly, don't rule out in and outpatient programs. I, especially there are the women that are reaching out to me on DMs that are neck deep in this, this process, like be willing to be uncomfortable in your life. If you need to put your life on pause for a nine week, three month, six month, year long program, a year investing into your healing for a lifetime of freedom and tools to support you in your struggle. Oh my gosh. 
Like that's the best thing you can do with your time and money. Don't let your ego or fear of being found out keep you from the freedom that God has for you. She had not known the weight until she felt the freedom. That's a line from the Scarlet Letter. I believe that we walk around in so much bondage, whether it's eating disorder or shame or not feeling enough or feeling unworthy or fighting for attention from others or bouncing from relationship to relationship. But since everyone around us is all in bondage as well, we accept it and it clouds our judgment. See, friend, being obsessed with food isn't normal. Not being able to eat without counting calories or mentally noting how much you'll have to work out later is dysfunctional. Throwing up your food and starving yourself is bondage. Pretending like it's not a problem is crazy. There is freedom for you. If I can get free, anyone can get free. There's more freedom than you can possibly imagine. I love how the writer in Ephesians says, now to him who is able to do abundantly than we could ever hope or ask for, to him be the glory. The freedom God has for you is more than you could possibly imagine. Your big dream is small in God's eyes. He wants to do infinitely more than you could ever hope. You won't know how much the weight of this bondage is crushing you until you start stepping towards freedom. And I promise you, it's worth the work. It's worth bringing to light and it's worth fighting for because you, friend, are worth it. Thank you so much for listening to this episode. It is so near and dear to my heart and I just so believe and pray for your freedom, whether you struggle with body image, eating disorder, or some other form of addiction. I know that God has freedom for you. So I just want you to know that you are not alone and you are so welcome here. You're welcome in this community and you are so worthy. There's a seat at the table for you here. So I want to ask you if you enjoy this podcast, if it has been a a blessing and a gift to you, which I hope and pray that it has, I would love for you to go on iTunes. You can either go on your desktop, laptop, iPad, or phone, search The Refined Collective. And once you do that, go ahead and click subscribe. So then whenever a new episode comes out weekly, it'll just download straight to your device. And then would you mind leaving us a five-star rating and a written review? Now, it sort of feels weird asking you that, right? Because I'm like, will you buy me this very specific present? (laughs) But why I ask you to do that is because it helps get word out there about what we're doing. It acts as this like SEO for iTunes. So if you could so graciously go to iTunes, leave us a five-star rating and review, it would mean so, so much to us. 
We just got one in this last week from a woman, Shannon, and she says, y'all, this podcast is what I listen to when I'm commuting or getting ready for my day. And let me tell you, this podcast is a form of self-care for me. Cat interviews amazing, educated, and inspiring people and covers topics like relationships, spirituality, sexuality, and self-care in such a graceful way that normalizes taboo topics in the church and keeps me inspired, encouraged, and just more excited about being a single woman in my 20s. So thankful for this podcast. Um, So words like what Shannon is saying is, it's not here to puff me up. It's here to create community and to spread the word. So I would love to invite you to spread the word with us by going to iTunes, subscribing, leaving us a rating and review. I want to pause to tell you about something I am so excited and passionate about. So for my single ladies, this one is for you. I just want to say I get it. Dating in today's culture can be a struggle fest. Do you ever feel like you're going to end up being a crazy cat lady watching Bachelor reruns, eating pirate booty all by yourself? I get it, girl. Let's face it. Dating can feel confusing, frustrating, isolating, and like a desert wasteland, but it doesn't have to be. I created a free resource guide just for you to support you in getting out there this year. It's called Six Tips to Activating Your Dating Life with Intention and Clarity. I truly believe that whether you've never been kissed or your last date was 20 minutes ago, this guide can support you in shaking things up and putting yourself out there in honoring and might I also say fun ways. These are the exact things I have implemented into my dating life over the last few years that have empowered me, given me clarity, and propelled me into getting from my couch onto an actual date. So hold up. If you're married or already in a relationship, don't tune me out. I know you have some girlfriends in your life that would benefit from this. So whether you are married or you are a single girl ready to put yourself out there, go to bit.ly slash TRW dating. That's bit, B-I-T dot L-Y slash T-R-W stands for the refined woman dating. This is where you can grab your free guide, six tips to activate your dating life now. So ladies, let's get out there, shake things up and have fun. I am with you on the journey.